everyone. Welcome to the first ever episode of my podcast, Sinister Crimes. I'm your host, Sydney. I just wanted to start off by saying that I have always loved true crime stories, trying to guess how they turn out and hearing all of the details. I usually get my weekly true crime fix through other podcasts, but when I binged all those episodes, I decided the best way to hear more of these stories is to look them up and share them myself. I always loved giving a voice to those who have been wrongfully silenced, and I will be releasing a new episode every week of the most sinister crimes I have come across, from the most famous and notorious criminals, all the way to the less heard of victims and survivors. And before I jump into the first episode, I just want to remind you to check out our Instagram at Sinister Crimes Podcast with an S at the end of crimes. And to get to know me and how I got started in all of this, visit the Sinister Crimes website at SinisterCrimesPodcast.com. On the website, you can also fill out the form for an episode suggestion for any case that you want to hear more about or a case you want me to spread awareness on. You can also check out all of my resources for this episode on the website blog post. And now, here is the story of Eileen Warnos, who killed seven men from 1989 to 1990. Were those self-defense crimes, or was it the work of a sinister killer who hated men to her core and planned every murder out? Eileen Carol Warnos was born Eileen Pittman on February 29th, 1956 in Rochester, Michigan. Eileen did have the tough childhood life. Eileen did not have the easiest childhood life growing up, but to understand her story, we need to first know how she came about. Her mother, Diane Buornos, was 14 years old when she married Eileen's father, who was 16, Leo Dale Pittman. They got married on June 3rd, 1954, and her parents did have a violent relationship, but they were young and swore they were in love. So at the ages of 14 and 16, only a few months after meeting, they eloped. Eileen's older brother, Keith, was born on March 14, 1955, and Leo, her father, was arrested for petty crimes before Eileen was born. I read from a few sources that to avoid going to prison, Leo enlisted in the army, but after less than two years of marriage and two months before Eileen was born, Diane filed for a divorce. Eileen's parents were separated before she was born, and her father was diagnosed with schizophrenia and later convicted and incarcerated for child molestation. He was found guilty of raping a seven-year-old girl. Wernos never met her father, mostly because he was incarcerated at the time of her birth and also because of their parents' separation. Leo Dale took his own life on January 30th, 1969 by hanging himself in his prison cell. Almost a decade before Eileen's father committed suicide in January of 1960, Warnos was not even four years old when Diane abandoned her children, leaving them with their maternal grandparents, Lowry and Britta Warnos. They were both alcoholics who legally adopted Keith and Eileen on March 18, 1960. They were raised alongside their grandparents' other children, Barry and Lori, as brothers and sisters. But growing up as punishment, Eileen's grandfather would spank them with a belt after pulling down their pants, which in my opinion is one of the most worst forms of humiliation 
for a child as punishment. Other neighborhood kids said Eileen's grandfather was extremely mean to Eileen and Keith and not other kids in the neighborhood. So I don't think anyone ever seeked help for them. It seems like they all thought it was a not my problem situation. Other kids and Eileen's adopted sister said she had an explosive temper and threw tantrums as a kid out of nowhere. And because of this, kids were afraid of her growing up. Eileen's brother was the closest person she had, and at other times they hated each other. And I think anyone with siblings knows that feeling. But what took people by surprise at first was that when she was 10 years old, the two experimented in sexual behaviors with each other. And from what I can tell, it was consensual and this lasted for a while. It even got to the point that a childhood friend of her brother, Mark Fern, saw it, but didn't know how wrong it was at the time because they were so young. By the time Eileen was 11 years old, she snuck out to be at a spot in town called The Pits and be with other boys by hanging out with her friend, Dawn Botkins. It seems like this was the spot in town that no parent really wanted their kid to hang around, but it was that one spot that if you snuck out the house, you would go there, especially if you were trying to do something that you didn't want to get caught at. But the police used to go there sometimes and make all the kids go home. At this time, she was having sex for money and cigarettes, and she didn't look at sex as a big deal. So once she realized she can get paid for it, she started prostituting and spent the money on beer and drugs. But her friend Dawn said none of the boys really respected her because they knew she would sleep with them anyways. So they weren't that kind to her, even knowing that she was giving them sexual favors, even though they were paying for them. I heard somewhere that her brother was angry when he found out that she was prostituting, but I wasn't able to confirm that. And if he was, I'm not sure if he was being a protective brother or if he just felt jealous because of their sexual relationship. I also read that Warno said her grandfather had sexually assaulted her and beaten her when she was a child, but before beating her, he would force her to strip out of her clothes, and I wasn't able to confirm if this was true either. At a certain point, Eileen's grades got really bad in school and her grandparents didn't know that she was a sex worker and her and her brother eventually ran away together to avoid the abuse at home. I'm not too sure when they got back, but in 1970, at age 14, she became pregnant after being raped by a friend of her grandfather. In her own words, Lee said, Having had sex with so many boys as a kid, no wonder I was going to wound up getting raped. And she blamed herself for that. And it's really sad because no matter how you choose to express yourself sexually, it is not an excuse for someone to rape you. But we'll get back to that later on. Her grandfather said she had to give up the baby for adoption and he sent her to live in a home for unwed mothers while she was pregnant. When she was back and after the baby was placed for adoption, she ran away immediately. And not too long after, her grandmother passed away from liver failure. When Warnos was 15, her grandfather threw her out of the house permanently and she began supporting herself as a prostitute again and living in the woods near her old home. At this point, Keith left the house too, but he was staying with some friends. Eileen spent the next two decades trying to find a place to call home, hitchhiking and doing sex acts along the way for money. 
Eileen ended up in Colorado at this point, and she wasn't wearing the leather skirts and crop tops. She was in shorts and a t-shirt, and anyone that knew her said she wasn't your typical, in air quotes, prostitute, but she made it work because she knows she needed the money. A bit later, in 1974, Warnos was imprisoned for driving while intoxicated and for firing a gun from a moving vehicle. She was later charged with failure to appear in court and was also arrested on multiple occasions after that. Some of those included armed robbery, check forgery, and auto theft. By 1976, she was at Daytona Beach, and after one year there, her grandfather was found dead by suicide in his garage. That spring, she married a 70-year-old man named Louis Fell. She mostly married him not to be on the road and to stop prostituting and because he spent so much money on her. Nine weeks after their marriage, he filed for a divorce because she hit him with his own cane after he wouldn't give her spending money. He also took out a restraining order against her. By July of 1976, Keith died of throat cancer, and it said she took that news really bad. Even with their ancestral relationship, Keith, besides a few of Eileen's friends from home like Dawn, was the only one to kind of care about her her whole life. And by 1978, when she was 22 years old, she used a 22 caliber pistol and shot herself in the abdomen. She said this was not the first time she tried to kill herself when she got to the hospital. And even though she recovered, she got no psychological counseling after that comment. Along the years, Eileen continued to get in trouble with the law by doing extreme theatrics. In 1981, she robbed a mini-mart at gunpoint in a bikini, and she spent three years in prison, mostly reading the Bible and complaining about her lesbian inmates. But ironically, Eileen started dating women when she was 28 years old. In 1986, she went to a biker bar where she got the nickname Lee, and this is where she found 24-year-old Tyra Moore. Tyra, who people call Ty, was inseparable from Lee. It's said that Lee was looking for an anchor her whole life, and she finally found one once she met Ty. Later on, her adopted sister said she didn't know if her sister was actually gay or if she was trying to see if the life was better for her because all she wanted was a connection. These two changed homes frequently, and they went from living in trailers to motels to apartments and even in the woods. There was a movie adaptation made on Eileen's life called Monster in 2003, and there was a depiction of Ty in that movie that was not quite accurate. When Ty later in life gave an interview, she said she didn't like the prostitution that Lee was doing, even though in the movie it made it seem as if Ty was okay with it because of all the money she was bringing in. Ty said Lee always had a lot of anger below the surface. There was even this one incident when they were in a grocery store and Lee yelled at people for looking at her, which was also not like the movie, which made it seem like Ty loved the public outbursts. I couldn't find anywhere how that actually made Ty feel being portrayed like that, but it was just something that struck me. Lee started to call Ty her wife, and Lee finally got the love she always wanted when she was with Ty. At 33 years old, she had companionship finally and would do anything to keep it. Ty did work cleaning motels, but there was always a lack of money, and Ty felt stuck that she couldn't leave Lee because she was all he had.
On November 30th, though, in 1989, this all changed when Eileen went on a killing spree outside Tampa, Florida, when she killed her first victim, Richard Mallory. After getting picked up, they drove into the woods near I-95 and Route 1. Richard was a convicted rapist, and Lee claimed to have killed him in self-defense. Warnos claimed she was sodomized and brutally beaten after being driven to an abandoned area for sex. She shot him four times in the chest and back. She stole all the money he had on him and covered his body with carpet before she took Mallory's car to get home to Ty that night. She told Ty when she got home that she had killed someone, but Ty didn't think Lee actually had it in her. So Ty thought Lee was joking at first. Lee cleaned the car and dumped Richard's stuff and ditched the car. Two days later, in Volusia County, a deputy sheriff found Mallory's abandoned vehicle. On December 13th, his body was found several miles away in a wooded area. Two bullets to the left lung were found to have been the cause of death, but they still had no leads. Ty stayed by Lee and never went to the cops with that information. She thought that it wouldn't happen again, but she said after everything came out that she should have known that she got away with it once and that's why she kept doing it. And this is a life lesson to all of you listening. It doesn't matter how much someone cares about you or supports you. It doesn't matter how much they say they love you or you think you love them. If they're capable of doing a heinous crime once, they'll do it again if they think they can constantly get away with it. There was a six-month break before Lee killed again. This time, there were three more victims, David, Charles, and Peter. They all died the same way Richard did. David Andrew Spears, age 47, was declared missing on May 19, 1990. On June 1, 1990, his naked body was found along U.S. Route 19 in Florida in Citrus County. He had been shot six times by a 22 caliber pistol. Charles Edmund Clarkson, age 40, died on May 31st, 1990. On June 6th, his body was found in Pasco County. He had been shot nine times with a 22 caliber weapon. The body had been wrapped in an electric blanket and was badly decomposing when they found him. People apparently saw saw Warnos in possession of Charles's car, and Warnos had also pawned a gun that belonged to Charles. Peter Abraham Samus was a 40, it was a 65-year-old man. In June 1990, Samus left Jupiter, Florida for Arkansas. Peter's body was never found or put to rest. On July 4th, 1990, his car was found in Orange Springs. Ty and Lee were seen abandoning Peter's car after an accident when Ty was driving and swerved off the road, and Lee's palm print was found on the inside door handle. Lee forced Ty to abandon the scene, and Lee ripped the plates off with her bare hands. And if this isn't someone spiraling out of control, I don't know what is. Ty never questioned Lee on why they had to leave the scene so quickly because she didn't want to make her mad, but I'm sure she had her ideas of whose car it was. Maybe it could have been one of Lee's victims or Lee stole it when actually it was both at this point Ty started to get afraid of Lee and what she was capable of the murders were so different than anyone had ever seen that law enforcement 
thought they had multiple killers on their hands. Eileen's MO was so unique. The first female serial killer. All bodies were found far away from their abandoned cars. This was almost impossible for law enforcement to put together. Lee and Ty decided to hitchhike back to Daytona. But after the car accident, a few witnesses worked with a sketch artist and sketches were released in local newspapers. Over the next five months, three more men found their deadly fate by staring down the wrong end of Eileen's gun. All these murders happened in Florida over five counties with a 22 caliber handgun. Troy Edwin Burgess, age 50. Charles Richard Humphreys, age 56. Walter Gino Antonio, age 62. And this is when law enforcement knew they had a serial killer. They released the sketches mentioned before statewide, and Sergeant Robert Kelly from Volusia County Police Department said they were seen and there was no escaping for them. Once this all started to come down around them, Ty left to Pennsylvania to be with her sister and left Lee alone. Ty knew this wasn't her fault and she didn't want Lee to take her down for crimes she didn't commit and that Lee could, couldn't protect her anymore. Of course, this left Lee heartbroken. Late that December, police finally got the break they were hoping for. Pawn shop records ID'd Lee through her thumbprint on a pawn shop ticket for an item belonging to one of the victims. Police followed her for two days and found out a bar that she was going to be at that night was planning a pig roast and a biker gathering. They knew she would end up on the back of someone's bike and gone long before the night was over. And this was their last chance to catch her before someone else died. They needed to move fast. And on that night of January 9th, 1991, she went to a bar called The Last Resort. And there she was arrested. All of the running and illegal crimes and lives she took finally caught up to her. Once this was taken to court, Lee knew that she had to choose between fighting the case or protecting Ty. But Ty did cooperate with law enforcement and she explained she was not around when the crimes were committed. Even though she did know about one crime right after it happened, the prosecution did not decide to charge her. But of course, there was a catch. She would have to help prove to investigators and try to get Lee's confession on tape that Lee did all of these murders. They had Ty write a letter to Lee with the motel phone number to reach her at, and of course the call came in from Lee on January 14th. Ty said the cops were after her and her family, and Lee became super suspicious on the phone call right away. She kept asking if there was anyone else in that motel room with Ty, and Ty said no, even though cops were right there recording her conversation to play later in court. And despite Lee knowing something was up on the other end of that line, she just wanted to protect Ty. And she said on the phone, and I quote, if I have to confess, I will. Two days later, Lee confessed for three hours to investigators, and this was recorded, and she's seen smoking and laughing and crying during this long confession. And John Tanner, who's Lee's prosecutor, said the confession was verbatim a rambling and disconnected dissertation. He said there was such a lack of emotion while she was talking about the crime she had committed. 
Lee still claimed self-defense, but was found guilty for six counts of first-degree murder. This was a first. This shook the country to its core. Women weren't known to kill this way. They would kill intimate partners and loved ones, but not strangers and not in the way Eileen did. But Eileen's sister said she was not shocked. Arlene Prowley, a 44-year-old born-again Christian from Florida, felt like she was compelled from God to reach out to Lee. She felt she needed to share the true good nature that Lee had inside of her, so Arlene visited Lee in jail on November 17, 1991, and Arlene and her husband adopted Lee, so they were able to visit her as much as they pleased. In January 15th of 1992, Lee broke down in court when she tried to catch Ty's eye as Ty walked to the witness stand to testify, but Ty ignored any eye contact. All Lee felt was heartbreak and betrayal. Ty said she doesn't feel sorry for making Lee cry, but she only feels sorry for not going to the police after the first victim because the other six could still be alive. Lee still claimed Richard raped and attacked her when she testified, and it took less than two hours for the jury to deliberate on January 27th before finding her guilty. As the jury walked out, she yelled at them, saying, quote, I was raped, and I hope you get raped, scumbags of America, end quote. Lee murdered seven men by shooting them at point-blank range. She claimed that her victims had either raped or attempted to rape her while she was servicing them, and that all of the homicides were committed in self-defense. The defense said she had borderline personality disorder and she should be spared her life, but not many people bought it. January 31st, 1992, she was sentenced to death at 36 years old. Prowley left Lee alone after Lee said Prowley was trying to profit from Lee's case by making a museum to sell Lee's drawings that she made while in prison. In July 2001, at age 41, Lee asked the state to proceed with the death sentence finally. Lee said having her wait for the lethal injection was a waste of taxpayers money and she said quote there's no chance in keeping me alive because i'll kill again i have hate crawling through my system end quote so she finally said that the killings were not self-defense and it was first-degree murder. During a jailhouse interview, she blamed police and three police were investigated for seeking movie deals before her trial even began. She thinks cops knew what she was capable of and let her go and kill all of her victims so they can profit from her story and be in Hollywood. Right before she was killed, she wrote a letter to God where she confessed everything but blamed others, including Ty, saying she brought her further into evil. She said that once she met Ty, she started drinking, smoking, and cursing more. She said that she killed for a better life for her and Ty, and I don't think Eileen ever took full responsibility for her murders. On October 9th, 2002, Eileen Warnos was given lethal injection at the age of 46. Her final words were, quote, Yes, I would just like to say I'm sailing with the rock and I'll be back like Independence Day with Jesus, June 6th, like the movie. Big mother ship and all, I'll be back, I'll be back.
end quote. Dawn, her friends, that she finally got the final words, which is all Eileen ever wanted to do. Afterwards, she was cremated and her friend Dawn spread Eileen's ashes back at their hometown. The thing that baffles me is that even though she had a rough childhood, people do come from worse and didn't do what she did. Supporters of Warnos viewed her as a strong, independent woman and even as a heroic figure for defending herself against male aggression. Some people say they feel bad for her and that she was clearly made this way. And some claim she wasn't a monster deep down, but life treated her so bad. I hope you enjoyed this week's episode. If you want to connect with me on social media, you can follow the show at Sinister Crimes Podcast on Instagram. And if you want information on the cases I will be covering or the sources for this episode, you can check out SinisterCrimesPodcast.com. There will also be a direct link to the episode's blog in the show notes. I will be back next week with a brand new episode. Sinister Crime is written, recorded, and edited by me, Sydney. See you all next week for your sinister true crime fix.